Good morning. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is written, do not put your Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. The word of the Lord. A long time ago, people of all ages and social classes would turn to this ancient text in times of need. And in this text, people would discover new ways of doing things, new ways of living life. And this text would remind people that help was just a fingertip away. What is this ancient text? Back in 2000, people called it the Yellow Pages. Now, if you're old enough to remember these days, this text was published every year, and it was dropped off at every single home and included a directory of services that you could call upon when you needed help. And you would call them with this device called a landline telephone. It was a communications device that served only one function, to talk to people over the phone. And you didn't have a touch screen, and it required physical exertion to press buttons on it. Or a dial, yeah, that you'd actually like, you could get carpal tunnel syndrome using those kinds. Now, if you needed plumbing services, you would look under plumbing and then call a plumber. If you wanted to learn how to play the piano, you look under piano teachers and find a piano teacher. But nowadays, life has changed, right? We've moved beyond yellow pages. If you want to learn a new skill or find out how to fix something, what do you do? Google, right? Raise your hands if you've learned how to do something new or if you learned to fix something by Googling, turning to YouTube or Instagram. All right. See, I learn most of our, my recipes nowadays off of Instagram. And uh, I learn how to fix things uh, around the house or my car on YouTube. But what resource do we turn to for our life of faith? As followers of Jesus, we are trying to learn how to live in life in this world as Jesus' apprentices. Now, Jesus doesn't have a YouTube channel yet, at least one that I've discovered. 
But for thousands of generations, uh, people have turned to the Gospels to get a picture of what it looks like to live in God's love. The Gospels refer to the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them provides a different account, a very parallel account of Jesus' life and ministry during his time here on earth. And as Jesus' apprentices, we seek to have our lives shaped and formed by the one human who lived life in perfect relationship with the living God of the universe and shows us what that life looks like when it's lived well. So today, we're going to start a new message series on the Gospel of Luke. And if you're wondering about the difference between Luke and the other accounts, Luke is the longest and most detailed account of all the Gospels. It's written, most scholars believe, for a Gentile audience, as opposed to Matthew, which is written more for a Jewish audience. And the Gospel of Luke is, was actually written by Dr. Luke, who is a physician, in, uh, in conjunction with Acts. And so they're meant to be written, uh, read together. One focuses on the life of Jesus, Luke, and the book of Acts focuses on the life of the early church as followers of Jesus. And they are both meant to be read uh, together in the, through the eyes of the same human author. And we're told that Luke is writing this to a friend, we don't know who he is, named Theophilus. And his goal is to tell the story as truthfully and as accurately as possible so that he can present Jesus and the life, his life to Theophilus and to us. Now, in, this, uh, in Luke, Jesus is presented as more than just a messianic figure. He shows us how the people of God can be formed into the likeness of God for the sake of others. And Luke also emphasizes this upside-down nature uh, of God's kingdom and how what the Jews and the leaderships of the Jews had rejected Jesus and this gospel that he preached. But we find that the same gospel welcomes all into God's promises. So, uh, one thing is Luke was not an eyewitness account to all of these events, but he was a companion who traveled with the Apostle Paul and saw the results of it. And so he took care to record and assemble this particular account of Jesus' life for us. Now, in today's text, in Luke chapter 4, we kind of skip ahead in the season of Epiphany from the Advent Christmas story into Jesus' first events of ministry. And this takes place just before he begins his active ministry, and it's known as the temptation of Jesus. As we seek to be led by Jesus, in this passage, we recognize the work of God's Spirit in Jesus' life. Because you, I don't know if you caught it, but it was mentioned three times in that passage. So we're going to talk about three movements here today. Echoes, whispers, and symphonies. Echoes, whispers, and symphonies. Now, Luke seems to write with a particular awareness of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus here in Luke, and especially in the life of the church as we see it unfold in the book of Acts. In Luke chapter, in just the preceding chapter, uh, that's the scene where Jesus gets baptized, and in verse 22, we're told as Jesus was baptized, he is praying and heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven, you are my son. And immediately after that, Luke gives us this genealogy. It's different from Matthew's account, who puts it in a different place. And this genealogy is actually a little bit different as well. In, this, in Luke's account, he traces Jesus' uh, 
ancestry to Adam. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew traces Jesus' ancestry to Abraham. Now, both of these are, of course, true, but they serve different purposes. Where Matthew emphasizes Jesus as this perfect Jew, as a descendant of Abraham who fulfills the law of God, Luke seems to be emphasizing Jesus as the perfect human, as the new Adam upon whom the Spirit of God has descended. And this same Holy Spirit that was there for Adam is the same Holy Spirit that is here for Jesus. And what happens next? Well, Jesse just read for us. Verse 1, Jesus, we're told, remember, Jesus was filled with whole, the Holy Spirit came upon him. Luke tells us about the genealogy back to Adam. And now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There's these two details here are, are in fact a recapitulation of this ancient text of God's people. They are echoes of the Spirit's work in creation and and echoes of the Spirit's work in the Exodus. Luke is presenting Jesus as this new Adam, whom the devil comes to attempt as well. And rather than being tempted in a garden as with Adam, Jesus here is tempted in the wilderness. Satan's encounter with the first Adam resulted in dire results for all of creation. But how will this encounter with the second Adam turn out. You know, Jesus alludes to, uh, Luke also alludes to Jesus as this new Moses, leading God's people in a new exodus. If you recall Moses, he was one who wandered alone in the wilderness to discover God's call on his life. He was one who led the Israelites to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and t- towards God's, uh, the land of pr- promise and blessing. And in Luke 4, we find that Jesus responds to each of Satan's temptations by quoting Deuteronomy, the very law that Moses received from God in the wilderness. So, like the question of Jesus as the new Adam in in creation, we have the same question of how will Jesus respond and deliver God's people? How does Jesus bring real liberation, not just from the, to God's people, not just from the grip of empire and oppressors like Rome and Egypt, but from the arch enemy, the devil himself. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is full of echoes of God's story written from the beginning of time. The question is, is how will we, uh, how will it turn out and what will we do about it? If Jesus is, who is, we're told, full of the Spirit, he's with God, He's the new Adam and the new Moses. And if we trust him as the same God who gives us the same spirit and fills us with the same spirit, then we are joined with Jesus as his apprentices to do the same work of renewing creation and for proclaiming liberation to those who are marginalized and to those who are oppressed. To be a follower of Jesus is not just to have this personal relationship with God. It's not a spiritual exercise for us to feel good about our, uh, have a clear conscience or to feel good that we're living a good life. Following Jesus has implications on the created order. Following Jesus has implications on what our social structure, uh, how, what our social structure looks like, 
whether we consider the effects of climate change or whether we advocate for social structures that encourage wholeness and freedom and equity for all. This scene reminds us of what we are to do, but it also reminds us how we are to do it. Take a look in verse 2. What does Jesus do when he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness? For 40 days he is tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Note how Jesus models the kinds of practices that help us in this endeavor of walking with God. He practices solitude, alone with God in the wilderness. He practices fasting. He eats nothing for 40 days. He, I'm pretty sure he practiced prayer during that time, because I would. And he practices scripture because he responds to each of Jesus's, I mean, Satan's temptations with scripture. And note that the fullness of God and of God's spirit with Jesus doesn't come on the condition that he does these practices. Jesus is already full of the spirit and he's led by the spirit into the wilderness. And these practices are what help him attend to life in the spirit so that he can engage with the world full of the Spirit. You know, last fall, we, lear we learned about the practice of Sabbath. And next month, we'll take a break in the interlude in the Gospel of Luke series to learn the practice of prayer. And a little bit later on, we'll learn the practice of fasting. The key here is that we're not doing practices to get more blessing from God or to get, feel closer to God, although that does and may happen. The practices merely help us attend to God's blessing and presence already at work in our lives and around us. The practices establish pathways of living and remaining in God's love. And in other words, the spiritual practices help us attend to the echoes of God's activity that have been sounding from the beginning of time and are inviting us into them. But amidst those echoes are also whispers. See, in the scene, the devil comes up to Jesus with three whispers that are recorded for us. Jesus, these are, what, what, does, what, what do these whispers say? Verse 3, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse 6, I will give you all this authority and splendor that has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be yours. Verse 9, second half. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. God will protect you. Three whispers here for Jesus. Three shortcuts to God's plan. Whispers of that, that breed suspicion towards the goodness of God, towards the care of God, and towards what you can do with God, the power that God has given to you. Now, these whispers are not new. They are ancient whispers as well. They came to Adam and Eve. They came to Moses. For Adam and Eve, the whisper was overt. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? For Moses, it came in the form of negative self-talk, in doubt, and in shame. Who am I, God, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? See, for Jesus, the first whisper presents a test, a test of whether he will meet his own needs by his own power or the power that God gives him or by yielded trust 
in God's care and provision. Jesus recognizes this challenge is not whether he's strong enough to feed himself, but whether or not he will act independently from God the Father. Now, this kind of independence that the devil suggests to Jesus seems to advocate something positive, self-agency, self-determination, all things that we uh, value in our modern culture. But when, in fact, this kind of independence is weakness and leads to failure. Because not all independence is healthy. In life, our priorities aren't defined by bread and eating bread at all, but on doing God's will and on depending on God's leading. You don't live by what you eat. Well, we think we do, but we live by doing God's will. And the second whisper that comes to Jesus asks, what or who will you be loyal to? For Jesus, this whisper says, maybe it's possible to get power and influence and maybe even to do God's will by avoiding suffering and the ugliness of the rejection of the cross that I know is before me. This whisper says that maybe God doesn't really want that for you. The third and final whisper to Jesus challenges God's willingness to protect him by saying, who do you trust and who's in control of your life? Do you think that God really cares for you if you're in this situation? Do you ever hear those kinds of whispers? I know I do. You know, our specific circumstances may be different from the kinds of temptations faced by Jesus because he's the son of God and had a very specific plan during his time here on earth. But these whispers of the devil come to us as well. Surely, God wants you to take care of yourself with the resources that he's given to you. You're smart. You're capable. In fact, wouldn't it look bad on God if you didn't take responsibility with what he's given to you? Or surely the Heavenly Father wants you to have authority and influence. Or surely God will, if God will protect his son, why wouldn't he protect you? Because you are God's beloved child as well. See, the devil is smart. Genesis calls him the crafty one. And he says, he comes to us with the same kinds of whispers, saying, oh, if you really trust a good God, why would God withhold this from you? If God is really powerful, why wouldn't it just prove God's love and power if you just put him to the test? But if we were to follow these whispers, though they may help us invoke God, and though they actually reflect a lack of faith in God rather than an abundance of faith in God, they reflect our attempts to control God rather than to yield to God's good and perfect will. These whispers come to challenge our trust in God and to be faithful to God. Satan offers shortcuts to our spirituality. and They encourage a form of independence that reflects disconnection from God rather than connection with God. Now this text also reveals this relationship between God's spirit at work and hardship in our life. Here we're told that Jesus is full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. You're like, what? 
Why would God do that? I want a life full of the Spirit, but I don't want that last part. If God is really good and loving, why would God allow that to happen to me? And the word that's translated as tempted here in English may be helpful for us here. It comes from the Greek word pirasmos, which means, on one hand, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, be te- to tempt, to entice, or to entrap. But it's also used to, be, to translate this idea of to put to the test and discover the true nature of something. It means both. So how do we reconcile God's will for us and Satan's attempts, uh, attempts to derail us? Perhaps it's best to see it that what Satan uses to tempt us, God uses to test the true nature of our faith. What Satan uses to tempt us and pull us away from God, God actually redeems and tests the true nature of our faith. The difference comes in how we view it and how do we respond. When we care for a difficult child or even a difficult parent, we may be tempted to act out in anger or frustration. But God uses that to prove our patience, to prove our kindness, and to prove our trust in God. We may suffer from a chronic health condition that tempts us to wonder about God's goodness and loving care for us. But that is an opportunity to remember the hope of God's restoration of all things. To remember where do we find joy in all things. That hope is on the horizon. What we experience now will not define us in the future. The injustice of racism and the seeming inevitability of the climate crisis may tempt us to act out in violence and destroy others who don't see things our way. But that's an opportunity to speak prophetically about a different way of living that doesn't require tearing others down and demeaning others. Echoes and whispers. Each of them invite us to further yielded trust in God or further independence from God. What Satan uses to tempt us away from God, God uses to prove our faith to return to God. So how do we recognize the difference? Many moons ago, I learned to play the violin as a child. And one of my favorite moments was playing in a youth symphony orchestra. And you've likely experienced this as well if you've attended a, a concert or a live symphony. Before the concert begins, you know, you have 80 or 100 different instruments who are all warming up and playing their runs, warming up their fingers and mouths and their instruments. And if you're able to pay attention to one instrument at a time, you might catch one melody or one run. But it's a beautiful sound. But then the conductor steps up to the music stand and he signals to the oboe player to play an A. And then slowly you hear all the instruments lock into that A and it's this beautiful sound of, and chords coming together. And then the conductor taps the thing, raises his hands. And as he's doing that, the musicians are finding their place on the score, getting ready. Everything goes quiet. And once his hands drop, the symphony begins. You know, all musicians in an orchestra follow a score, kind of like we followed this score for the hymns this morning. 
They familiarize themselves with the score and they know what to do with it once the conductor signals go. You know, in this text, Jesus shows us the score that he follows. It's the score of Scripture. It's through Scripture that we begin to recognize the character and the mastery of the greatest composer ever, the living God of the universe. And the Spirit of God is the one who teaches us what to do with that score. Luke tells us that Jesus is full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. He goes first. But what does the, the devil uses to tempt, God uses to test our familiarity and our faith. In each of these temptations, the devil actually uses Scripture, presents it to Jesus, and twists it for the purposes that weren't intended for it. He says, it is written. It is written. Each time, quoting from Deuteronomy. That's how Jesus responds to these temptations. Jesus' response reveals how Scripture, guided by the Holy Spirit, helps us to ward off the temptations of the devil. Echoes, whispers, and symphonies. You know, amidst the echoes of God's story unfolding in history and the whispers of the devil's attempts to derail that story of redemption is this great symphony that is being composed and folding, unfolding around us. Each of us is invited to be part of this beautiful orchestra. And in this orchestra, the first chair, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar, but the, the conductor has, uh, so if he's, there's, there's usually two violinists to his left, and the first chair violinist is called the concert master. They're the one who leads the rest of the musicians. They're, they act as the intermediary between the, the, the conductor and the musicians. Jesus is like our first chair violinist. The Spirit of God might be the conductor who gathers people's attention and looks, invites them to look at the score of Scripture written by the master composer, the living God. You know, when the evil one comes along to try and derail God's symphony from being played, we have the Spirit of God to guide us in reading the score of Scripture. And we have Jesus as this first chair, human, <laughs> leading the way for us into the pleasure and to the goodness of God. Our, tasks, our task as Jesus' apprentices is to simply follow the leader. Like Jesus, we can familiarize, familiarize ourselves with the score that is Scripture, so that when we are tempted to deviate and wonder about God's goodness, we can recognize that it's happening and how to respond. Like Jesus, we can develop spiritual practices and these rhythms in our lives that help us attend to the Spirit of God who is always guiding us, always at work around us, if we're willing to pay attention. You see, temptations will come. Tests will come. The Spirit of God may even lead God's people into situations where we may be tempted, like Jesus did here in this text. But Satan's temptations do not surprise God, and neither should they surprise us. Life with God is not a guarantee against discomfort 
and sacrifice. But when they happen, they are not mistakes. They are not insurmountable. And they are neither fatal. They're not fatal either. Because the same Spirit of God leads us into those situations, will lead us through them and out of them. Jesus models how we might walk through life full of the Spirit, amidst the echoes of God's story and the whispers of the evil one to derail us from that good story. All of this is for this glorious symphony of creation that God is inviting you and I to participate in. Let's join together with God in this beautiful, world-changing endeavor, following in the footsteps of our big brother, the first chair human, Jesus, the Son of God.